Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. In this episode, I'm speaking with Daniel Bluegren. She is the Senior Consumer Insights Manager at Roku, a brand of hardware digital media players that offer access to streaming media content from online services. Daniel is a member of the account acquisition marketing team that supports all research initiatives designed to bring more consumers onto the Roku platform. At Roku, Daniel loves to dive into the brand and get to know the consumer at a deeper level. Hi, Daniel. Welcome. Hey, Darshan, thank you. I'm really looking forward to talking to you because uh, there's a lot of things happening in the streaming space. But before we get to that, I'm curious, you're a self-proclaimed devotee of the voice of the customer, but I want to know, tell me your journey and the aha moments that led you into market research, because you've been in the industry for about 20 some years, right? 20 something. We don't have to be exact, right? <laughs> you know, there's a couple different things. When I was in grad school, getting my MBA. And all my friends were talking about going into marketing. It wasn't where I wanted to go. And the more I talked to people, you know, and I talked to my professors and I would talk to friends, parents, and, you know, anybody I could who was further along in the business world than we all were asking what I love. And when I told them what I love, I said, it's, it's math and it's analytics, but it's also human behavior and a touch of psychology. And I kept hearing from people, have you considered going into market research? Have you considered market research? And so I started looking into it, took a couple classes during my graduate program, and I was hooked. It was just the perfect place for me. So what was it about it that led you to proclaim yourself to be a devotee and a voice of the consumer? That to me is a little bit of a deeper level. Well, I have a lot of passion for what I do, a lot. So it's not just a job for me. It's not just numbers and analytics. I really, really care about understanding what people are doing and why they're doing it and really, really getting into their heads. And so I think having that real sense of curiosity about people, not just looking for the numbers and the answers for the team, but really trying to dig in and understand why do people behave the way they do? Why do they view things the way they do? And really trying to put yourself in their shoes is to me such an exciting experience. And it helps me understand everything else I'm seeing better, right? I can tell you that a concept test that product A scored better than product B, but why? What does it speak to for people? You know, what gets them excited? What is it that resonates with people? What are we doing right with them? What is going on in their heads that connects them to our brand? So I really care about trying to, you know, quote unquote, the overused thing, walk a mile in their shoes, but to truly have empathy for them and understand, you know, more of what's going on in their heads so that the next research I do, I understand them all the better. It's interesting listening to you. I I share the same passion. That's really what uh, drives me as well. And I'm curious, do you feel the same way I do that? Sometimes you feel like you're getting a, a peek behind the current into the future when you're doing this. I do. You know, it's really funny that you use that term because when I was at Taco Bell, we came up with a consumer you know, panel that we wanted to go to again and again for qualitative and quantitative research. And so we called them our taco entourage because that show was very big at the time, entourage. And then we called it as a subtext, a peek behind the tortilla. 
So it was to them, it was the the opposite, right? We're peeking into their lives a little bit, but we wanted them to feel like they were peeking into the Taco Bell corporate a little bit as a reward for what they did for us. But you absolutely are doing that. You know, you're starting to see what is up and coming. What are the next big things? What are people thinking that drives the future of what we do in product development six years from now, a year from now, two years from now? So to me, it's very exciting, especially when time passes by and then you start to see those changes and see products come to fruition that you know are guided by things you saw, you know, a couple of years back. You know, one of the things I talk about in my book is this trend of blending. And one of the examples I talked about was Taco Bell and Doritos coming together. Were you involved with that effort? Or? At the time that that came out, I had left Taco Bell, but I was part of the process of looking into that. That was one of those things that every now and then there's something that's such a no brainer that you just know it's going to be a success. So Doritos Locos Tacos was one of those. I was doing ethnographies and this kid was saying, when I finally told him at the end that this was Taco Bell, I was like, oh, please never get rid of the Doritos Tacos. It was just like this, you know, it was the holy grail of tacos for him. And our crunch wrap that we had, which was a way that you could all of a sudden take Taco Bell on the go. Certain things, it's just like when you see those winners that meet all the consumer's needs, you just know. Yeah. I'm curious, what's the backstory? How did that uh, combination come to be? Was it actually from consumers or, or how did it happen? I believe from what I recall, it was more somebody in the product development team. So we had Pepsi, right, as a former partner. So we were no longer part of Pepsi like we'd been in the past, but we still work with them. So for instance, I worked with the Pepsi Consumer Insights team to develop the proprietary Baja Blast Mountain Dew that was sold only at Taco Bell. And so this was another way to utilize Pepsi products, Pepsi flavors with the Frito-Lay brand in combination with Taco Bell. And so we talked to them about, you know, what if it came up during a brainstorming, actually, now that I recall it, like, what if we had different flavors of taco shells? What could we have? You know, we could have a spicy shell. We could have this and that. And then it led to, wait a minute, there's these great chip flavors that already exist out there. We don't have to reinvent it. You don't have to reinvent nacho cheese. You don't have to reinvent, you know, Cool Ranch when they're already out there and already popular. Yeah, I mean, and it was one of the most successful product launches ever, wasn't it? I believe so. Yeah, it was phenomenal. Just It just resonated. You didn't have to explain it. You didn't have to sell it. It was just, you could almost look at the picture and taste it in your head. And that was it. Exactly. It was just one of those aha moments. Like, of course, that just makes sense. <laughs> just makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you're currently the Senior Consumer Insights Manager at Roku. Tell me a little bit about your role and what it is you do on a daily basis. Sure. So I've been Roku for about two and a half years now. Um, as you mentioned, we're part of the account growth team. So that means that all of us on our particular research team, and there's six of us right now, are looking at all the different things we do to bring new people onto the Roku platform. You know, that could include looking at products and the features that are in products. It's positioning, it's pricing, it's naming, it's packaging, it's the traditional marketing piece that we all learned about. We're looking at all those things to determine who our customers are, what they want, how to appeal to them, how to market it to them, and so forth. So give me some insights as to what's happening. I think there's been quite a big few changes, even prior to COVID-19 in the, in the world of streaming and going cordless. But what has really happened even since then? And where do you kind of see it going now, even post-COVID? You know, when I started, we had, um, and this is all public information, we had about 37 million active accounts. And we just hit 60 million. Mm. 
Mm. Now, we can definitely credit COVID for some of that, but Anthony Wood has publicly said many times, and he's our, you know, he founded Roku back 20 years ago now. He always said this was going to be the streaming decade. He foresaw streaming as the future of television. And he believed that the turning point was going to come around this point. So even when 2020 was starting, we were already talking about the streaming decade in the complete absence of COVID or all these stay-at-home mandates and things, because we saw that as the tipping point when cable was going to start to drop off and streaming was going to take over because it's such an improved way of watching your content. Absolutely. And you guys are going quite a bit international as well. Do you see differences in the consumers? you know, let's say U.S. versus international. And also, how do you tap into those insights for international customers? So for international, we actually have somebody on our team whose role is to look at the international research. And so she is looking at what's going on in the U.S., but also what's going on in in Canada and the U.K. and, you know, Brazil and Mexico, which is all countries where we have good presence. And she's looking at who those consumers are. So we have a good understanding of where they're younger, where they're older, where streaming is a more established behavior versus where it's a more of a minority kind of thing. And it's earlier, you know, kind of on the cusp people are streaming, but the average person isn't. And so it's really fascinating to see the differences between the countries. But I think it all has to do with also, you know, when did broadband become commonplace in different locations? When did it become not just early adopters who had it, but everybody? So in some countries, I think they're going to follow the same kind of path that people did in the U.S., just at a later date. Mm-hmm. You've been doing this for over 20 years in terms of market research. How has your approach to you know garnering insights changed over time? You know, I think to me, you're always doing a little bit of a balance of art and science. And depending on what you do, there's more art or more science. So if I'm doing ad research, for instance, I've learned that you have to put a lot of the art part into it, which is it's not just hard numbers, but you have to look at how are people feeling when they see ads and so forth versus if I'm doing a segmentation, I can rely much more heavily on the science. I didn't know that early on. It's over time, if you're in the same industry for a long time, I think you develop your own kind of points of view on things. So what do you favor as a methodology and when? Or, you know, when is it time to be completely scientific and when is it time to put a little of that art and qualitative and gut and your own just general know-how about the consumer into it, not just the numbers. Um, so I think it's it's been an evolution of, you know, developing my own frame of how I look at things, my own point of view as to what's important. But at the same time, I don't think I've ever stopped learning or adapting that to this day. How have you found the balance for yourself between quantitative and qualitative? I'm a huge fan of both. And I will tell you that flat out, I think they absolutely have a role. I know you can read articles online all the time where people say, are focus groups dying and this and that? Well, no, not if you use them properly and in the right way and understand how to analyze them. So they're great for certain things. They're great for understanding the why behind things. Um, Numbers can tell you what, they can tell you how many, they can tell you who, but if you really want to understand why that is, You need that qualitative. It might mean you need to be in focus groups. It might mean you need a one-on-one with somebody. It might mean you need to go to a store and watch somebody shop. All those things teach you things you can't learn in your surveys. And so I would never want to have one without the other because I think I get the complete picture of what's going on when I bring all those different sources together. Yeah. 
And you've been on both sides. You've been on the vendor side as well as the client side. Tell me a little bit some of the differences you've seen on both. And I think you lean more towards the client side now, correct? I do. So you know, there's pros and cons to both for sure. On the vendor side, I love the fact that I got to work with all different clients in all different industries. So, you know, might be working on, you know, fast food and then you're working on electronics and then you're working on something else. And it's it's constantly something new. And from every industry, I feel like you learn something that you apply to your next project, no matter what, or that's the same industry or a different one. So I like that breadth of experience. But when I was on the client side, what I missed is what happens after the research. You know, you do a project, you do qualitative and you write a beautiful report and what you think is beautiful and you turn it in and you wonder now what, right? What happens? Did they talk about it? Did it get put in a file? Did some action get taken from it? Um, same thing when you deliver, you know, quantitative results and you've done a concept test or a segmentation. I love to see the whole path of what happens and you miss the before, which is okay because they can debrief you, but you don't get to see the after and you don't get to see how it connects to all the other initiatives or even other projects you were working on. So I love that continuity. I love the building of information over time where I continually learn more and more about the same subject and more and more about the same consumer, the streaming consumer, where every project I do adds to my knowledge base. Yeah, I think you've talked about it that way, which the longer you work at a brand, the more you get to understand the consumer at a deeper level. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit more about the process. How do you go about doing that and keep a pulse on understanding the consumer this way? And what contributes to them coming to life for you? Yeah, I think it's every time I do some kind of research and going back to the thing about qual and quant. Let's say I'm doing a quantitative survey and I understand what's going on. And like I said, you know, what's resonating with people, but it's when I talk to them and understand the why and the mindset and what's driving it, which may be completely different than I expected when I really learn how they're processing things, how they're thinking about it, why they're reacting the way they do. It helps me understand them as people, not just numbers who prefer, you know, a product over another. Every time I shop along with a consumer, every time I sat down with people inside a Taco Bell and talked to them, all those things bring these people to life. And it's amazing to me, every ethnography or any kind of one-on-one things you do with consumers, I remember these people for five, 10 years or more. I might not remember their names, but I remember meeting them. I remember what they told me. I remember who they were. And so all those kind of become a bit of a persona in your head. And I used to put on when we did positioning for Taco Bell products, I could literally put myself in that head and I spoke differently and I wrote differently, if that makes sense. It wasn't me. It was kind of channeling of them and trying to use their language and their tone of voice and everything like that to not just be my representation of them, but try to actually bring them to life. So you really put yourself in their shoes and you started to kind of sense what they were thinking and feeling. Yeah. Yeah, you really do. You really try to understand the why behind it and who they are and their lifestyle and their choices and their, their living situations and everything that drive what they're doing in the market. So when I say Roku customer, what do you think of and, and why? Roku customer, well, the early ones, they were early adopters, right? Because we were the first ones out there with streaming. So the people who have been using Roku since the beginning, those are people who took a chance. Those are people who are willing to try something new when it was unproven and early, but exciting to them. They were willing to do it when it wasn't a perfect experience and you certainly didn't have access to all the content you do now. 
But now I think we are the choice for people who want streaming and want smart streaming. You know, we are known as being very well priced and a great value for the money. People tell us all the time, and you know, we are very public about this that we are the easiest, in our opinion, to use. You can get on board with streaming in a couple minutes. And it's easy to search for what you're looking for. It's easy to add another channel. Whatever it is you want to do, it's made to be a very simple interface. But that doesn't mean you're not techie. You know, techie people also appreciate the simplicity of design, right? And that and people who really love streaming and want access to as much content as possible. So, you know, not not the restrictions. We try to be as agnostic as possible in not only what we carry, but also if you search for things, we don't, we're not trying to promote ourselves first. We just want people to have great access to everything they want to watch. And I think that we get that feedback from people, you know, in return that that's what they appreciate about us, but it's all ages, all genders and working on, you know, many, many countries when you're being able to reach that broad of a consumer base, I feel like you're probably your basic tenets are coming clear to people. So I'm curious, you know, a lot of people talk about the experience. How much of your time is devoted to the actual experience of signing up, but also the actual experience of using the product with the user interface and the user experience? So we have a whole UX team that is always looking at every single element of that. So we've got, you know, an end user experience team. We've got UX who's working on once you're on board, what happens? How do we make that experience better for you? How do we upgrade things? How do we change things? Um, My personal experience is in helping to alpha test things. So all the employees are invited at times to test new things. And it might be a product you're testing. It might be a remote a device, and it could also be you're testing a new version of the platform to see how it works, to see how the changes work so that we can get all the bugs out beforehand. So my professional life is more on the product side and you know, looking at what we stand for and our brand recognition and things like that. And then that other team is really looking at, okay, we've got them on board now. How do we make this experience the best it can be? What are some aha moments you've discovered on how people actually use streaming services? You know, it's, it's, there's been some funny things to me, um, not funny so much, but it's people's interpretation of what it means to stream can be very different. So someone can tell us they love to stream and we find out that just means they watch YouTube on their laptop and that's it. Right. And that's streaming. Technically that is streaming. And then, right. And then you've got other people that means they haven't had cable. They don't use a laptop. Everything is going through a Roku device or a Roku TV. And they really understand the breadth of what's out there. But it's amazing to me still in 2022, how there are a good number of people who have heard about this streaming thing and really don't know what it is or how to implement it. And that's not just age-driven. I see it in all decades of age. And um, I know we've always got right tech early adopters and tech laggards, but it's interesting to me that that's still a little bit mystifying to some people. Interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Is that the same you're finding international as well, or is it even more different? I think it probably depends on the market and you know how advanced they are, like I said, with broadband, what's already been in place in that market before we um, joined, what the habits were. You know, you look in every market's so different. You go to Germany, they don't have to pay for cable TV. And so their needs are a little bit different. And then, you know, UK, they've been 
doing these kind of things and streaming through other devices for such a long time that they're very familiar with it. So it's really all over the place. Yeah, I know some of the TVs in Europe, they're actually much more interactive. Mm-hmm. Like people can actually interact, do surveys and everything, get feedback right on their TV sets. That's cool. That's very cool. And they're probably smaller sets on the whole than, you know, they're, they're not buying our 85, 90 inch sets most <laughs> of the time either. So it's just a different relationship with television. So you being in, in the head of the Consumer Insights team, I'm curious, what do you look for when you're hiring people you know, to join your team? Uh, are there certain characteristics and things you've seen that really uh, lend themselves better to being on an insights team? You know, it's interesting. We've had hired quite a few people lately. And I think one of the neat things is that our director and a couple of us who are senior managers find it very easy to agree on good candidates. And I think a couple of things we're looking for that just shine through are not just your skill set. Depending on the level we're hiring for, you might be able to develop the technical part of the skill set with us and learn more about survey design, learn more about qualitative projects. But if you have a real innate sense of curiosity and you're asking questions and you care about the answers and you want to dig into that one deeper level, one deeper level, whether it's digging into data to see one more thing and look at one more cross tab or one more question you want to ask people qualitatively, that's essential, I think, to really, really making the most of what we do as for a living. But the other thing is passion. We don't want people who are just like, yeah, I'm a researcher. And that's what I do. But people who love it. And when people love it, it comes across. It truly comes across. You know, you said uh, recently you guys uh, are over 50 million users. Is that correct? Active accounts? I believe we hit 60. Oh, wow. Okay. So I'm curious. That's a lot of data, a lot of information. How do you strike the balance as to what's really important and where you should be putting your focus on? Yeah, it is a lot of information. So like we talked earlier about there being you know, people who are looking at the UX you know, team and looking at the user experience. I've also got other people who are looking at analytics, right? What can we learn from our database of 60 million users? What can we learn from their habits and the correlations between different habits and things we know about them? So that's an analytics team doing that. I look at those users as my panel. I have a panel of 60 million people I can go to. I want to find people who stream a certain amount and ask them questions. Boom, they're there and I can talk to them and I can talk to them, you know, easily. And I, I can vet that they are who they say they are. Their habits are what they say they are because they're not just self-reporting, but I know it. I know they do. I know what they own. I know how much they stream. And so it's fabulous to have that big of a pool where no matter how much I want to cut it to get a specific user and have a conversation with them, run a survey with them, I can do it. You know, a lot of times you have all this information, this data, and sometimes the insights that are there are not that clear pop right out. Have you found a way to kind of go through that and how you can share that with other people in your you know, organization in terms of how to utilize the, some of these insights that are just kind of laying there that can mm-hmm. really drive the business? Well, a couple of different things. Like if I'm going to do a study, which is really based on just the Roku users, I may use that analytics team to first pull some information for me so that it gives me some idea of what's happening and we can do a little bit of theorizing around why that might be so that I can ask the right questions in my surveys, right? So if I look at their data and understand that there's a correlation between this behavior and that behavior, or this behavior and how much do you stream, 
It's like, hmm, okay, that's something I can, they can tell me the what, but they can't tell me the why. And so that gives me a topic I can dig into and ask people about why. I can be asking them open ends. I can have, you know, different behavioral questions in there. And then I could be able to, on the back end, compare a couple groups of people because I've pulled people from the, and I'm making this up completely out of the blue, but, you know, heavy streamers versus, you know, the super light streamers. I can not only look at their on-device behavior, but I can understand what's going on outside of that and make a connection. And then we also try, when we have the insights that come out of our research, we're researchers. So if you want to give me a hundred page deck, I'll read it. You know, if you're a supplier, I will read it. I will have questions about it. I will dig into it. I will still ask for more, but it's our role to say, okay, what are the big insight ahas that are coming out of this? And how do we communicate those to the rest of the company, giving up our desire to show every last piece of detail and every piece of information that we find so fascinating and distill it down to here are the top things you need to know. You know, here's your top 10 things. Here's your great eight things that you need to know. And you don't need to dig as deeply as we need to. So we try to distill it out in terms of those really high level insights that a team can take and then strategize against. So uh, looking back, you know, you've been in the research industry for over 20 years. I'm curious, what do you see are common mistakes that many people do when they're pursuing insights? The things I've seen that I consider kind of the mistakes are not knowing the right methodology for the question. And sometimes that's our marketing partners and that's okay. That's not their job to know it. So like, for instance, when I started at Taco Bell, people would come up to me and say, I need focus groups. And I was like, well, no, maybe you do. Maybe you don't. What do you need to know? And then I'll tell you what you need to do to get that answer. Right. I'll tell you, maybe it is focus groups. Maybe it's something in store. Maybe it's a survey. You know, I've seen people who really don't know the right application. They think surveys kind of do it all and they don't, you know, a straightforward survey isn't always the right answer. And so that I think can be a mistake as well as how they're designed. I remember taking, you know, classes in this when I was in college about how to write questions and we did our own surveys with people. And I see questions that are compound that are asking two things in one, like, well, then how do I interpret the results for these? You know, so everyone feels like they can write a survey, but not everyone can write a survey well. And so as a result, I think some of the DIY tools are great if you really understand research and you are a researcher and you've been trained as one and you understand how to use it. But they can also, if you don't know how to use them or you're a little bit too DIY, just kind of doing your own thing, which I've seen with some small companies and small budgets, you could take yourself way off track and you won't even know it because you don't know bad data from good data. You don't know the ways you ask questions in a way that is not ideal. And so you're taking data and treating it like, aha, we have numbers, we can run with this, but they may be not really measuring what you're expecting them to. And you're throwing your strategies against bad data and not knowing it because you can't tell, you know, unless you're a good researcher, you can't tell. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You really need to know your objectives firsthand and then decide on the methodology. And oftentimes I find that people do want to get at the why, but mm-hmm. they often end up going uh, with the route of surveys because they're more familiar with them because everyone's at least taken one. But sometimes you actually need the combination of both. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you find that you often are doing both in many instances when you're engaging in insights discovery? I am quite often, you know, I'm doing some things right now that are mixed methodology because I really need to bring the two together. Sometimes it's concurrent where I can go out and do a survey and I can do some qualitative at the same time and bring them back together. Other times I need one before the other. 
Maybe I need the qualitative to come up with ideas that are going to go into the quant study. Or sometimes you do the quant first and use the qualitative afterwards to understand why you saw what you did in the quant. So that's another thing you need to know is like when you mix them, what's the best way? Is it one first, one last, or doing them at the same time? What do you see on the horizon in terms of market research, but also in terms of streaming? Where do you see things going to the future? I think it's a great, great future for streaming. We've obviously built up, you know, huge business in the United States. We're doing it in other countries. We're not the only one out there. You know, Chromecast, Google is out there focusing on international markets. Fire TV is out there. All of us together, I think, have a bright future for continuing to bring streaming to more and more people across the world. The cable companies are trying, you know, by having their own streaming apps, but it's not the same experience and it's not going to be designed the same way as it is like for us by people who do nothing but that. This is what our designers do and our engineers do. Streaming is our entire business, right? So there's, you know, a certain level of, you know, excellence in the area that comes with that. But um, I think it's fantastic. Like you look at the growth and say, wow, so much growth already, but I think that's nothing compared to what's to come. And as far as research, I just think there's, I think it's kind of the same answer, which is I've seen so much growth in ResTech and all these phenomenal ways we can get out and do research virtually or faster or in a more agile manner and for less money. And some of them are great. Some of them I've evaluated and said, I really don't see a place for them, but there's been so much development. And I don't think that's done either. I think that people are already imagining things we're going to see six months, a year, two years from now that I can't even comprehend yet. And I'm thrilled about it. <laughs> yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. Is there an area of market research that you'd love to delve into further and why? One of the things I didn't have a lot of experience with in my past was all of the shopper work. So I've done a little bit. You know, it took me, I think, a long time when it everybody first started talking about it. And there were all these shopper research conferences coming up. I was trying to understand to myself, like, what is the difference between shopper and consumer, right? At the very beginning, because in my own sense, I didn't see it. I think I was at Taco Bell then. So shopper wasn't really a term that we had. People don't browse a Taco Bell. They don't, you know, shop at like a grocery store, an electronic store, a toy store. But then I started realizing for other industries, how that was applying And then you start to understand how much value there is in understanding that journey. And I'm not saying there's no journey in picking fast food. I just think it's such a different process to pick up something functional like that for $8 than to go into the store and buy something that might be a couple hundred or more, let's say a television. It's a different process. It takes a lot more time. It's something you do far less often. So when you can really understand that process, and today, especially understanding how it's omnichannel, you know, where are they talking to people? Where are they going in store? Where are they going online? How is that all coming together? I think it's a really fascinating area to explore that I would love to dig into more. Yeah, I think it's interesting. It made me realize that if you think about even with food, you know, it's all about convenience for all of where you are physically. But now even the convenience has changed with all these delivery services, right? Mm -hmm. is going through the apps and saying it's not just a matter of convenience, but it's also other factors that are influencing because everything's somewhat convenient because it's right at your fingertips and it can be delivered to you. 
So. Absolutely. In fact, we are door dashing right after I'm done with you today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what's the thought process you're going through there, right? Is it the convenience uh-huh. or actually what are you in the mood to eat and what flavors and things like that? So That's right. We picked our yeah. restaurant. I'll just pick my meal afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> so who in the world of market research would you love to have lunch with and why? That hands down would be Alberta Burke. So I worked for Burke, you know, Burke Incorporated Market Research back in 2018 and 19. And her story of starting a company as a female in 1931 and having the vision to start something that no one else had really done before blows my mind. And she did it so beautifully. Like, I, I just admire so much the fact that She had this idea, I can help companies better understand what their customers are thinking and help them with their marketing, make them better products. And then she had such a clear vision of how she was going to execute that and how everybody who worked for her should execute her vision that I'm just in awe. Like, how did she know? Like, how did she know that this vision and this idea she had were going to work? Or maybe she didn't. But how did she come up with that in such clarity in terms of what she wanted to do and how she wanted to do it. And then just to be a woman, what, 91 years ago, doing something like that blows my mind. I'm like, I'm so impressed. I'm thinking she did that a century ago when she you know how rare it was for women to be working at all and for her to start Absolutely. a company and right and have a vision. I've just always been inspired by her. And I think the everybody who works for Burke if there's one commonality, we all leave or all spend our days there just in awe of that woman. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's an insight that turned into a real vision. Uh, that's mm-hmm. quite an accomplishment. Yep. It is. It really is. Well, Danielle, I want to thank you for our conversation today. I've really enjoyed talking to you, learning more about streaming as well as pursuing insights. And I appreciate the stories you shared with us. Entirely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com and make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.